Hi, welcome to the Emergence Monthly Highlights. I'm Joe Floyd. And I'm Doug Landis. Got a full highlight session this month. Quite a bit of stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about public and private markets, what's been happening in both public and private markets. We're going to talk a little bit about M&A. In particular, we're also going to talk about the YC Demo Day, which just recently announced some of their investments. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about funnel metrics in the my little corner of the world. And we're gonna wrap, of course, we cannot leave without talking about the old Mayweather-McGregor fight. Sounds like a fun day. Let's kick things off with the emergence news for the month of August. We invested $15 million in a Series C in a company called Blend Labs. Blend is a front end to the mortgage industry. They make it really easy for customers like Wells Fargo, who's one of their biggest customers, to take online loan applications. I mean, Doug, (laughs) you've been through this process. I've been through this process in San Francisco. It's a pain in the butt. It's a giant pain in the butt. In fact, most banking institutions won't even take all of your important financial documents in a box or a Dropbox link. Yeah, like you can't even send them a link. or something, right? Or something. Yeah. They, they, they want you to use these archaic systems. And so what Blend is doing is they're enabling people to just log in with their credentials. They pull information, almost do the loan application for people. And that way, it's all in the exact way that a loan officer wants to receive it to make their life easy. So it's a win-win on both sides. And what big banks like Wells Fargo, you know, their biggest customer, are seeing is that the time to close a loan is getting faster and therefore their loan officers are more productive and they're able to do more business. So it's just a win-win all around. So Blend has created the infrastructure so that these financial institutions can just turn that on. Yep. Cool. And I think what's really interesting about this investment, you know, at Emergence, we've had a thesis in Industry Cloud for the last kind of five, six, seven years, ever since Viva Systems. And one of our core lenses for looking at the world has been, is a company trying to disrupt an industry or is it trying to enable that industry? And in particular, financial services has seen a ton of people trying to disrupt them. So Mm -hmm. people that are saying, oh, rather than help the bank lend, we're going to be our own lender. Someone like SoFi or a... Or a guaranteed rate. Yeah. And then you've got companies, particularly in the investing world, that are trying to to be an app where you can put your money to work and they're taking the place of the wealth manager. Mm -hmm. So what we thought was really interesting about Blend is that they're being an enabler and they're going to the biggest banks and they're helping them take advantage of of new technology like APIs, like AI, those types of things. In doing so, they can can land these amazing big contracts and really build a big business. So we, we thought they were taking a very interesting approach to this market. It makes me wonder, why why weren't the banks actually doing this, building this themselves five years ago, 10 years ago? They knew that the market was was moving in this direction. Yeah. I mean, why, why does Blend actually have to exist? Well, number one, I think it's hard. The, the IT departments of big banks probably aren't UX experts. And a lot of what the magic is, is making that user experience seamless. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is for a mid-market bank, it probably doesn't make sense to invest tens of millions of dollars in building out a beautiful, simple, easy-to-use product that's constantly going to be changing. It just makes more sense to leverage an outside third party. You know, that's the use case for Blend, and their metrics are looking great, and the team led by uh, CEO Nima is just is, is rock solid, and we're really excited to partner with them. It's good stuff. It's exciting to see wh- where this goes. Cool. So let's dive into some of the public market news for the enterprise. Doug, you want to kick things off with uh, some IPO news? Yeah. So um, looks like MongoDB just filed to go public. For those of you that don't know MongoDB, they are a NoSQL database 
company that competes against the likes of Oracle, Microsoft, SQL Server, et cetera. What's really interesting is if you take a look at, they've raised thus far north of $300 million. They've got a, wow. over a billion dollar valuation. But what's interesting is if you look at how they rank, they stack rank against the other kind of database companies out there, Oracle, MySQL, Microsoft SQL Server, they're actually fifth hmm. in the stack rankings. And that's actually gone down. So they used to be fourth, now they're fifth year over year, which is really interesting. So they're not necessarily trending in the right direction in terms of their overall progress. But if you look at kind of databases in the, the kind of the top 20 of database organizations, they're the only one that kind of has this slightly different architecture. It's called a document store architecture versus a relational RDBMS kind of a traditional model, which is what Oracle is standardized on. You know. yeah its entire history. It's a really interesting model. It actually seems a lot more flexible and a lot more powerful. But so I'm curious as to why they're actually trending down in terms of you know, their stack rankings versus kind of some of the other players. Maybe it's just, it's just, a, it's a tough battle. Yeah, and maybe it doesn't matter because the database market is just so big. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe it's big enough that they can keep running. What I, if I were them, what I'd be worried about is some of the infrastructure players releasing features similar to them like Amazon with yeah. Dynamo or maybe uh, Azure or, or Google probably doing something similar and just killing them on price because they're yeah. already priced much lower than Oracle. Yeah, yeah, they were saying something to the effect of <clears throat> they want to price out their software to be the similar as to what you pay for a server. Whereas, you know, they pay $5,000 for the software where you pay $5,000 for the server where you, as an Oracle, you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for the software plus $50,000 for support and maintenance on top of a $10,000 server. So like the cost structure is dramatically different. So you would, you kind of wonder why they're not maybe doing even better or maybe they're doing great. Maybe fifth it overall is, is fantastic. I mean, if you look at the other players in that space, it, you know, there's some huge, huge companies, but I think yeah. you bring up a really good point. Amazon's um, DynamoDB is actually ranked 22nd on the list, but they could jump to seven pretty quickly hmm. and make, make life pretty relatively difficult, but they're clearly doing some things right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, because I mean, they filed the confidentially, so we don't know their numbers, and it'll be interesting to see when those numbers get released, to see how they're doing, to see how the public markets receive them. Yeah, yeah. So, which, which of course we hope is great for all. Yeah, right. speaking of public companies, the bellwether of our industry, Salesforce, had their earnings announcement this past month and had another just fantastic quarter. Amazing. Crossed the 10 billion ARR mark, which is amazing, and has just maintained this kind of 25% annual growth year after year, despite the fact that it just keeps getting bigger. <laughs> the, thing that, the thing that struck me the most was, was how big the marketing cloud has become, yeah. and how big the e-commerce business has become through that demandware acquisition. Demandware acquisition, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they've got such a stronghold on the CRM side, right, in order to continue to grow and scale. They clearly made some bets in other parts of the business, right, on the service cloud, side yeah. on the marketing cloud clearly made a ton of bets and the good news is it looks like it's paying off I mean not all of their bets paid off but certainly combined as a solution they certainly have uh, they're, sh they're showing everybody yeah. so, so that there's still a lot of meat on that bone I guess here's the most amazing stat though from the quarter they beat their revenue target by a hundred million you think about that that's what a startup's goal is over the course of like seven years <laughs> and they beat it they just beat that casually you know in a quarter so <laughs> Pretty ridiculous. Uh, the other, the other. So, so not sandbagging over there. <laughs> well, it's just such a big target. Yeah. The other could also just be one big contract. Who knows with them? The other big 
public news, which was nice to see, was that Twilio had a really nice rebound quarter. And if you remember, you know, three months ago, we were talking about how Twilio was having customer concentration issues with Uber and WhatsApp, mm -hmm. and the fact that they weren't willing to sign long-term contracts. That really spooked the market. This quarter, they, they shot up 10% after hours based on 50% year-over-year revenue growth. But the big news was their customer concentration decreasing. So their top 10 customers represented 21% of overall revenue versus a year ago when those same top 10 were 31%. Yeah. So that's that's a great sign for that business, but it's also just a great sign for you know tech IPOs in general because that was a, a little bit of a black eye for our market in particular. Yeah, it's a good reminder though about customer concentration, right? There's some safety in numbers. Yeah, although whenever we point out customer concentration as a challenge for startups, they always look back at me and say, like, what would you do if you were me? Would you tell them, I don't want your money? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I always recommend is just be careful to be really clear that you can support those big customers, right? Because I've seen startups take on like a GE as a customer mm -hmm. and that literally breaks them because they don't have the infrastructure, the people, the support resources to actually support a big customer like that. And then a customer like that makes demands, product yeah. demands. In fact, I use Box as an, as an example. In the early days of Box, Procter & Gamble, their first big six-figure customer, came to them and, and made a ton of requests for the product. And Aaron, I got to give him a lot of credit. He actually said no. They took the deal down. They still ended up becoming a great marquee customer for them, but they said no to a lot of their demands because they knew it wasn't what was best for the business as a yep. whole, for all of their customers. Yep. And I think that's something that's really important if you're gonna take on a big customer like that. Yeah, it's a win if you can still get the customer and say no. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. So uh, in terms of M&A in the enterprise this, this month, what did you see? Well, a really interesting one that was a little under the radar, but you know, as an investor, I'm sure this raised a lot of eyebrows. Cisco actually acquired a company called SpringPath. SpringPath, provider of enterprise storage and, and data management software, certainly makes sense for them. They bought them for $320 million in cash, plus some retention-based incentives. What was interesting is they were just founded, SpringPath was founded in 2012, and it only raised $34 million in, yeah, great in funding. Outcome for them. It's a great outcome for them and their investors, and probably also for Cisco as well. Yeah, hopefully. They've been, they've been known to do good, good smart acquisitions. Yeah. Who else on the on on the M and A side of did you see that was interesting? So a little bit a little bit smaller of a deal, but interesting because of the sector. We saw Descartes acquire MacroPoint and freight trucking logistics market for 107 million dollars at a really healthy multiple, 8.6 times wow. run rate. But what's so interesting about it is we've seen a flood of venture capital money going into this market. Right. And the vast majority of it has been on people trying to disrupt the brokers by creating online marketplaces, kind of the Uber for trucking. And what's interesting is that this company, MacroPoint, is an older company that's really more on the software side. And it's kind of in an opposite trend from where we're seeing all the money flow. We've hmm. Just last month, we saw two $40 million rounds in very early stage companies with minimal revenue trying to build these marketplaces. And then we see an old guard company buying a technology company for, for $100 million. It's, it's just kind of an interesting juxtaposition to see so the dollars are flowing. these guys, Descartes, are competing against the likes of the convoys of the world. They're not. They're really more like competing with the GT Nexus. They're kind of the software layer that, that shippers would be using. Mm. But in some ways, they're saying, why would I try to disrupt the trucking industry? I can just help the shippers do a better job. Right. Do their job better. And they can kind of figure out the way that they, how they want to spend their money and how they want to get their goods from point A to point B better than saying, no, I'm going to just give my business to Uber and they can do whatever they want. Right. So right. It, it could be a little bit of a defensive move for them. So it's just, it'll just be interesting to see. I find this market so fascinating. And you know, obviously, Emergence has our own bet in Project 44, which is 
trying to be another type of enabler who's enabling the industry to have more visibility and have you know faster transactions all through a modern API framework. So I just find this industry so interesting and I kind of want to, one of those situations where I want to fast forward three years and find out <laughs> what happens, you know? So it sounds like everybody should pay attention to trucking logistics. It sounds boring, but it's going to change. It's going to change the game for everyday Americans in the way that they receive goods. Right. Well, then if you think about it, if we can optimize it, guess what? That's going to happen. We're going to all end up spending a heck of a lot less on shipping costs because I can tell you, shipping costs are crazy. Can be crazy expensive. Yeah. And it's a big part of what goes into cost of goods sold for every product you buy. For sure. Interesting example, though, of what you were talking about earlier is focusing on either enabling an industry versus disrupting an industry. The likes of the convoys going after the disruption, the likes yep. of the P44s and the Descartes going after further enabling. Yeah. Be interesting to see how that plays out. It certainly will be. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the biggest venture rounds or kind of the most important venture rounds that we saw. So what was, what was something you caught your eye? Well, I mean, you can't disregard what happened, what's going on at Databricks. I mean, they just raised $140 million in funding. They've now raised almost $250 million in funding, all primarily led by Andreessen. I mean, these guys, they're on fire. They're absolutely on fire. Have some good friends at work over there. What's really interesting when it comes to the to Databricks is you, you gotta love the management team. Yes, their technology is incredible. Their management team is top notch, which is what I think a lot of people are really buying into. In particular, Matei, who's the co-founder. Matei, I can't. I'm gonna botch his last name. Saharia, young kid. He is actually an assistant professor of computer science, and he's the CTO at Databricks. But he's the one that started the whole Spark project. Mm. So Databricks is all about leveraging that, leveraging Spark, yep. right? Open sourced platform to process ginormous amounts of data. So forget about put, pulling, putting together a Hadoop cluster, run it all on, on Spark and use the Databricks framework and models basically to get your, you can get a database set up in a matter of minutes to go crunch some pretty heavy data. Yeah. I this mean, kid is it's just a whiz. They're definitely playing on the right on the right trend. That is a large amount of capital to raise. They've got to be expecting winner go home type type of outcome here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there's. I mean, I think they're showing it. I mean, based on their customer traction, the Spark audience, and the growth of the overall Spark audience, the number of people actually playing with Spark versus like, hey, let me go, you know, roll up this big Hadoop database. It's dramatically different. Yep. Right. Cool. I think what they're doing is placing a really big bet on Spark. Yeah. And Fair. these guys happen to be the leaders in that because they have the guys who created, created it. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So I saw two pretty interesting ones. One was Amplitude raising 30 million led by IVP. And the second was Appboy raising 50 million led by Iconic. I think they're both interesting because they're both in market segments that are crowded. To me, it's, it's almost like seeing that maybe these are two of the companies that are going to break out of the crowd and be that leader. In particular, you know, Appboy started as mobile marketing automation. Appboy competed with Kahuna, competed with, with, with a few others, and they all raised similar size A's and similar size B's, and were, and, but this is the first one to raise that, that kind of pre-IPO mega round. And maybe that means that they're the one that's gonna break out and, and be the ultimate winner. And then with Amplitude, young founder, Spencer Skates, brilliant guy, he was going after a market that was really crowded in marketing analytics, particularly for mobile, and has been very capital efficient and built a fantastic business. And this $30 million, I think, is going to be all the ammo he needs to take it to the next level. So it's both companies are in crowded markets, but they're really the ones breaking out. And I think that's really interesting. Hmm. So two companies to watch. Yeah. So speaking of companies to watch, we had YC Demo Day this, this month. And, you know, every half year they unveil 100 plus new companies. 
unfortunately only like 10 of them are relevant to the enterprise investors. Right, right. Um, but you know, one major theme that I saw this semester, so to speak, is a real focus on AI. I think that was the buzzword that, that they threw around quite a lot. And we, we identified probably eight, nine startups that were doing some version of machine learning or AI for enterprise use cases. And so we each kind of picked a couple of those to share. So why don't you go first? Yeah, so the one that looks really, really interesting, super excited about this. Feels like it might be a little early, but we're gonna get there and we're gonna get there rather quickly. So it's a company called Standard Cognition. It's AI powered checkouts for in-store purchases, right? So they're basically using machine vision and machine learning, which is really amazing, to build the checkout of the future. So imagine if you walk into a store, let's say you walk into a CVS, you grab two, three products, and literally you just walk out the door. Grab your products and go is their is their kind of their their yeah. mantra. Yeah. Because what's happening is there are cameras all over the store that can see what product you grab. And based on that, it's that's what they will charge you. They can see that you bought, that you grabbed a packet, a box of Band-Aids and some hair gel, right? And they know exactly what those products are. And they, they create basically your bill of goods. They charge whatever card you have on, on your account. You just walk out the door. So no longer do you need that checkout line. It's almost like creating a kind of an Amazon buy experience, the prime buy experience, but yeah. just this is actually in stores. I wonder how it's gonna work when you have 100 people and the, you know, the aisles are really, really crowded and you've got 25 items in your, in your cart. That's gonna be a little interesting. What happens if you put something back in the wrong aisle yeah. or you just you decide you don't want it? Well, for our audience listening, Doug and I watched their demo video <laughs> and it was really cool to watch people pick items off the shelf, it tracks it, put them back in different in the wrong spot, but it still tracks and knows that you put it back. Have have you toss something to your friend yeah. and knows that now your friend is the one buying it. I mean, they really had thought through a lot of the use cases. And yes, it was in a controlled environment, but man, I mean this would be game changing. Yeah. Yeah. In for many, sure. In many ways, you mentioned Amazon. I mean Amazon is doing this in uh, in Seattle in one store. I think it's RFID based and, and not not uh, not computer vision. But somebody basically will have to do anything that Amazon does, someone will have to do technology-wise for the rest of the for everybody world, else. For everyone else that wants to compete with Amazon yeah. because they don't have the IT budget or the or the tech skills to go do a lot of this cutting edge stuff. So yeah. I think there's a, this, I agree with you. This is a pretty interesting opportunity. Well, imagine if Amazon could apply something like this to all of their Whole Foods locations. They, and they will. They've and already they talked will. about it. Eventually, yeah. right. So to your point, standard cognition is really creating that technology for everyone else. Yeah. For the CVSs, the, Wal yeah. you know, the, the Walgreens, maybe even the Walmarts of the world. And you know, Walmart is probably the number one buyer for anything that's gonna be to help them be competitive with Amazon. So it's yeah. a pretty good situation. Yeah. Cool, so the, the one that caught my eye is a company called Loop Support, and they're trying to be AI-powered customer service as a service, so it's kind of a little meta. What they wanna do is take over tier two, tier three support on behalf of a company and use AI to learn from all of the human conversations that have happened in that company's history to then be able to automate a lot of the low-level tickets that don't mm -hmm. require human intervention and then be able to augment the human in the cases where it's a little bit more complicated by giving them the steps that maybe will shortcut or giving them the information at the exact right moment they need to kind of shortcut a ticket. And so I think there's a real opportunity there and they've got the metrics to prove that it's going well. They, they, they mentioned they were growing 84% month over month. Now, obviously it's a small base, but you yeah. know, you gotta start somewhere. So I'm, cu I'm curious if Xfinity Comcast is actually using them. <laughs> so there was an interesting example, actually. There was an outage yesterday in my neighborhood. Actually, there was an outage at the main source of Comcast. 
Was um, it Game of Thrones related? <clears throat> no, it wasn't. It was actually in the middle of the afternoon. And so I called and I spent like three minutes talking to a computer. You know, they, they sent a test signal to my machine. Then they said, can we follow up with a text message? We understand once we get the data back from the test signal, it was actually really easy to deal with. Turns out, because it was part of a bigger outage, it didn't fully understand that, didn't recognize mm. that based on my address. So it's still missing some steps in there. So I eventually had to talk to an individual. But for the most part, the, the beginning interaction, the first three to five minutes was great. Cool. It was all computer oriented. So. We're definitely going to get there. You're probably the only person who's ever said that about yeah. Comcast customer service. <laughs> well, I think Comcast has certainly invested a lot in getting better. There was nowhere to go but up. That's <laughs> true. Uh, very so true. So let's, uh, in the interest of time, keep things moving. We've got our favorite segment of the day, Doug Deep Dive. We're going to wow. talk about funnel metrics. So Doug, given where we are in the year, we're about two-thirds of the way through, and if you're a CEO, you're starting to get a little nervous. Hey, am I going to hit my number for the year? What are the metrics that CEOs should be, should be looking at and caring about? Well, so listen, I, regardless of the size of company that you have, I, I fundamentally believe that well, first of all, funnel metrics matter to everybody in the organization. Whether you're in sales, whether you're in marketing, whether you're in product, it does not matter. Everybody needs to understand kind of the funnel metrics of the organization. Mm -hmm. Because this is basically how the, our prospects move through, you know, the, from the time in which we, we identify them in the early stages, all the way to becoming a customer and how we continue to nurture them and beyond. And the reality is, is given the fact that we're in Q3 for many of our customers right now, for many of our many of the companies out there, it's really, really important to understand, well, how are you gonna hit your annual number? How am I gonna, how am I gonna get through Q3, hit my targets for Q4? And if you're not already thinking about that right now, you're way behind the eight ball. What's interesting is to be able to know and identify what levers you can actually pull in order to help you get to your number at the end of the year. And that's really what funnel metrics are all about, right? Yep. So where do we need to invest? If I had an extra, at the end of Q3, if I had an extra $100,000 in money to spend for marketing, where do I put it? Do I put it in field marketing events in the middle of the country? Do I put it in Facebook ads? Where do I actually put it and what's gonna give us the greatest return? Is it too late? If you're, if you're looking at that now, trying to make your number by the end of the, is it just too late? It depends on your sales cycles, yep. right? And so it, if, you've got a, if you've got a six month, nine month sales cycle, it's definitely too late, which means then you should have been thinking about this at the end of Q1 and not close to the end of, the end of Q3. But yep. for most companies, you can close business between now for the next four months to get you to your number. And in fact, half your number should probably already be on pipeline as it is right now. So it's really important to kind of go through your pipeline and then apply those funnel metrics to your existing pipeline, right? And so if you kind of think about it, there's kind of some industry standard in, in terms of conversion ratios, which is really, which is important. And my recommendation to everybody is you evaluate your own conversion ratios against kind of the benchmarks, the industry benchmarks, right? And so those are like basically 10 to one from marketing leads to marketing qualified leads, right? So marketing leads would be this ginormous pool of anyone who's been to the website ideal customer profile okay. companies that could potentially be customers yep. right not even people that come to the website just forget about the website this is just like overall pool of customers sure right whether we get them through the website or through an event or through a webinar doesn't really matter it's just of that pool 10 you know on on average it's like a 10 to 1 ratio from marketing leads to marketing qualified leads whereas now i'm gonna have some level of touch and engagement meaning they've actually downloaded a white paper yeah. they've gone to a webinar. they've raised their hand yeah they've raised their hand said i'm interested once you go from there there's some level of qualification that happens now you're at like a five to one ratio from mqls to sqls right so the conversion from a marketing qualified lead to a sales qualified lead now shrinks again about a five to one ratio there. 
from sales qualified leads, once you actually get a salesperson to touch, then the conversion ratios there diminish pretty significantly, right? So now we're looking at more of like a three to one ratio. So that's from our MQLs to our SQLs, SQLs now to opportunities, it's about a three to one ratio, right? So think about this, if you've got 3,000, let's just say at the very top, you've got 3,000 you know, marketing leads, convert that to MQLs to about 300 MQLs. So convert that to SQLs, now you're looking about 60, because that's five to one. And then opportunities in your pipeline, you're now, given the ratios, you're now looking at about 12, right? So if you've got a 30% close rate, that means you're closing four opportunities. Yeah, better hope those are the right four. Better hope they're the right four, right? And also, so it just goes to show you that look at how many marketing leads you need at the top of the funnel in order to get to four opportunities, right? Yeah. It's brutal. I feel like the, the demand gen industry should be paying you for this uh, testimonial, <laughs> making their job secure. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, but, but here's the thing though, as a sales leader, you need to know this because you need to understand what you need. And guess what? If marketing can't generate enough top of the funnel leads, then it's now up to you, yeah. salespeople. And yeah, so that's, you, and that's a grind. So knowing, so basically, you're saying that sales leaders need to know what's going on upstream to make sure that they have Absolutely. enough pipe to, to to actually hit their numbers. It's all about coverage, total right? Sense. It's all about coverage. And guess what? If I, you know, depending upon my number, four opportunities may not get me there. Right. Right. Because typically, I need a three x pipeline in order to get me to my number. Yep. So I probably need, <laughs> I don't know, twelve right? Opportunities instead of four. So therefore, reverse math, that means I need somewhere 12,000 marketing leads. And and if you're a CEO, you also don't want to be investing in sales reps if you know that you don't have the the marketing funnel. Exactly. Exactly. So as a CEO, there's two things to be paying attention to. Let's look at our funnel metrics and then let's look at output from our reps. Both those things are going to help us determine whether or not we're actually going to get to our number. I see a a blog post coming out of this. There's lots of them already written. Let's wrap things up with uh, the fight of the century was what it was called. Yes. Uh, Mayweather-McGregor, we both watched it and we thought, what analogy can we draw to the startup world? Yes, where you have somebody who's in a totally different discipline, but pr- predominantly top of his game in the, in the UFC side of the house. Mm-hmm. Very dynamic personality. I think that was part of the draw. Oh, he was like, he's such an incredible personality against but you the, can't one of the greatest fighters saying, of all time. Oh, totally, so. not at all. <laughs> but he just says it with such gusto, you want to believe it. I, I listen. <laughs> I listen harder. Right, but you t- you got to have somebody in a totally different discipline trying to unseat arguably one of the greatest fighters in the world, ever. Mm-hmm. Mayweather, very flamboyant. Did you know his company's called TMT, the money team? Yeah. yeah. He also walked out wearing... TBE, the best ever before the fight even began. The best ever, so, yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, and and Hublot on this shorts, which is like one of the most expensive watch brands in the world. The guy's the guy's a little much. So so Joe, tell me, give me an analogy on the enterprise side. We we racked our brains about this, and the best one we could come up with was a young startup out of Dublin called Stripe, at the time going up against PayPal, the behemoth. And PayPal made most of their money in payment processing, but also had kind of the, the personal wallet business and the eBay business. And Stripe said, we're gonna come and do dead simple integrations for people's websites where they can drop in a couple lines and process payments, and we'll handle all of them. And I don't think a lot of people gave them a fighting chance because they were going up against very established behemoth player. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they did a fantastic job proving, proving the world wrong. And they continue to do so. The question then becomes, as Stripe grows, you can kind of look at it, well, 
I think McGregor's stock just went up a hundredfold as a result of this fight because he he held his yeah. own. And he'll make he'll make a lot. And more he's going to make a lot more money. <laughs> and the question is, is does he continue to box or does he go back to you know his MMA fighting or yeah? So where, 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 where's his upside? It's almost just like where's the upside with Stripe? I think right now it's in both cases. Right now they're still growing, but they they probably have ambitions to, to be a bigger financial services company and not just you know do payment processing. Who knows? If I characterize this as Mayweather McGregor, they're still in the third round, right? Yeah. So they're still they're still pumping hard and, and looking great. So you know, no one no one's looking going. wobbly right now. No one's looking wobbly. <laughs> we definitely hope they don't get knocked out because we love those guys. Cool. That's a wrap. Thanks uh, thanks for tuning in. You stay sassy.